This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Thank you very much and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm Richard Lee from the Guardian Books Desk and this morning we're rattling the test tubes in the Laboratory of Fiction with Ned Bowman and Clemens J. Zetz. It's a pair of novels which explore altered states of being, whether this condition is imposed either by external forces or ingested in a twist of cigarette paper. Um, There's going to be a brief introduction. I'll try and keep it as brief as I can. Then some readings, some questions. Then after that, we'll open up to you folks. Um, There's also a book signing that you should know about in the bookshop on the left as you uh, go out. So pausing only to, thanks, to offer thanks to prestige venues and events for this morning's necessary stimulant, I'd like you to turn off your phones, if they're not already off, and welcome Ned Bowman and Clemens J. Zetz. Thanks. Um, Clemens Zetz, or, or do you prefer it with a J? No, that's, that's all right. There we go. Clemens Zetz is um, an Austrian writer, born in 1982. Uh, he's won numerous prizes for his three novels. It's, it is, that's three, is that right? Am I counting? Uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's three novels. Five, five books and three, no- yeah, yeah. Uh, including, including the Leipzig Book Fair Prize and the Ernest Villner Prize. Now he arrives in English with Indigo, in which children suffer from a mysterious condition which inflicts headaches, dizziness and more on those around them. Uh, Ned Bowman was born in 1985, that, that's right, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, there you go. He's officially the future of British fiction, since being selected as one of Granter's best young novelists in 2013. So, uh, how does it feel to be eternally young, Ned? <laughs> I don't feel eternally young. <laughs> I feel increasingly decrepit. His first novel, uh, Box of Beetle, was shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award in 2010. His second, The Teleportation Incident, uh, was longlisted for the Booker and won the Encore Award, and he's here today with his third. So that's another three. That's right, is it, Ned? Yeah. Yep, there you go. The third is Glow, which stages a kind of ghost conflict between Burmese revolutionaries and a mining corporation on the streets of South London. It's filled with foxes and awash with drugs. We, we might um, get a glimpse of that in a minute, but first I wanted to start with a quick-fire question for both of you. So, Clemens, are you an experimental writer? Well, that's a derogatory term in the <laughs> German language. So, but I'm now here in English speaking in an English speaking country. So, I, I think maybe I will, um, yeah, uh, I'll be happy calling myself that. But usually, it's it's called somebody's called that if you can't understand what he's writing in the German <laughs> the German world. Um, so, I'm putting you down for a yes, though. <laughs> yeah, to, okay. yes, today. Yeah, I'm in Scotland. I mean, why, why wouldn't I be an experimental writer today? Then how about you, Ned? Are you experimental today? Today? No. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe on my best days, yes. Okay, today, fantastic. Yeah. That's a qualified yes again? Yeah, yeah okay, excellent. Um, so we won't be demanding your money back at the very least. Uh, perhaps we should begin this morning's experiments with a section from the opening of GLOW, um, in which Raf is um, just... Uh, the, the night is really getting going. Sure. Um, yeah, thanks for coming, everyone. Um, uh, this is my third time at the book festival. I'm staying at this hotel just opposite, um, and I walked in the first time, and in the foyer or whatever, there was there were these displays of model limbs with pressure sores and these like complicated orthopedic clamps on tables. So my first thought was, oh, this is one of those sort of boutique hotels where they've done something interesting with the decor. But it's not, it's a crown plaza. So my second thought was, it's the fringe, so this must be 
part of some kind of site-specific J.G. Ballard adaptation. <laughs> um, but it's not that either. It turned out that there's a, like a medical supplies conference going on, <laughs> going on at the hotel at the same time as the book festival. But the name of this conference is the International Trauma Convention, which I also think <laughs> is a really good name for a books festival. <laughs> um, and... Um, I also I just love the idea of the two of them being there at the same time. So like, um, you know, the the maids open the door of the room in the morning and find it laden with high tech prosthetic limbs and thigh braces and stuff. And that's just my room. Uh, <laughs> um, but I hope there will be some collisions in the in the bar at night. I want, to be, I want to be calling my agent saying, I know we've gone the conventional publishing route so far, but I've had a very attractive offer from Smith Nephew Arthroscopy Solutions. <laughs> They're prepared to give us some very attractive royalty rates as long as every character is wearing one of their wound management products <laughs> at all times. Um, I think it would be appropriate because my writing does heal the sick. So <laughs> what better publisher than a medical supplies solutions company? Um, this, yeah, this passage is the main character is Raph, uh, his best friend is Isaac, and they're waiting for a guy called Barky to arrive with some drugs. Um, and earlier on, uh, he has seen this girl at this rave in a laundrette that they're at, but has failed so far to approach her. I think that's, yeah. Um, the reason the owners of this laundrette are allowing a small rave to take place here tonight is so that they can sell drugs to the crowd. But all they have is cocaine, ketamine, and a new ecstasy understudy called ethyl bufidrone that you can buy legally over the internet from laboratories in China, none of which are of any interest to Raph. Looking around, he feels, not for the first time, a mild bitterness that he wasn't born 20 years earlier, when a night out would have been all about snowy Dutch MDMA in a giant import warehouse near the M11, a drug culture so good people wrote memoirs about it, instead of these self-administered double-blind trials in a 20-square-metre urban utility. How was London reduced to this? Quite soon, Isaac follows him back inside, and Raph sees that a boy and a girl have stripped down to their underwear and climbed inside one of the big spin dryers to kiss, their skinny limbs struggling for purchase on the inside of the drum like test subjects in some astronautical study of the sexual possibilities of small cylindrical spaces. They, at least, have taken something good, or maybe not something good, but at least something they've never taken before. The DJ is playing a track that Raph has heard on Myth FM a lot. He climbs up, up on top of the dryer, above the perspiration troposphere, to look around for the girl from before. But he can't see her anywhere, so he just stays up there to dance. Later. When Barky does arrive, he still wears flecks of shaving foam on both earlobes like little pearl studs. So maybe, like Raph, he got out of bed only a short while ago. In his wallet, there are three more wontons, which is how I describe these uh, little portions of drugs wrapped up in cigarette papers. Three more wontons wrapped up in a shred of orange supermarket bag. One dose of glow, which is his drug, for each of them. About half an hour after Raph took that previous compound, he started to feel a change, but so weakly that he wasn't even sure. Like when you go into a room and you think you can feel a cold draught, but no windows are open and it might just be your imagination. Then it was gone again. So he's excited about trying Barky's novelty, and he's about to swallow some and get back up on the dryer when he feels a touch on his arm. He turns. It's that same girl from before. 
She leans to talk into his ear, and he watches a soft shine skate across the film of sweat on her clavicle. What is that, she says, which is a lot better than the expected, why were you staring at me like a psycho before? She must have seen him take the wonton from Barky. Glow, he says. Is your friend selling it? She has an American accent. No, but there's no way Raph is going to leave it at that. He's had girls flirt with him just for drugs before, of course, and maybe that's what she's doing. But in that case, she doesn't know the rules because there's no empty smile, no hand alighting provisionally on the small of his back. Plus, what if she is? He once slept with an Icelandic girl he met like that at a party. So he hopes he's not being a total dupe when he says, do you want some? Now she does smile. No, that's okay. But he takes her hand and presses the wonton into it. I've heard this stuff is amazing. What? Should he suggest they go outside so they can hear each other? No, not yet. What's your name? Cherish, she says. Well, that's what it sounds like. Is that a name? What's yours? Raph, do you have any water? Just a second. He turns to Isaac, but he doesn't have the bottle anymore, and Barky doesn't have one either. Raph thought he saw a half-empty lemonade up on one of the washing machines, but he can't see it now. And when he turns back, the girl has vanished again, like the ambiguous chill of the pedigree psychotropic. He asks Isaac and Barky where she went, but neither of them were watching, and Barky doesn't have any more glow to spare. Uh, later again. Raph stumbles out of the laundrette to find himself engulfed in flowers. It's as if some phenomenological anode inside him has been swapped with its cathode, so that every sensation is replaced by another of exactly inverse quality and equal intensity. Petals for skin, perfume for sweat, cold for heat, silence for noise, anthocyanins for disco lights. Only after a moment does he realise that on Saturdays there's a flower market on this road, so they're unloading the tulips and daffodils. And sure enough, just at that moment, the silence is broken by the trundling of a steel trolley as it comes down a ramp behind him. He breathes in deeply and then walks on down the road to the bus stop where he can catch his night bus. Isaac and Barky have already left the rave. For a while, they said they weren't feeling anything from the glow, and Barky also had a gram of ethyl bufidrone, so they all resorted to dabbing some on their gums, which always reminds Raph of rubbing salt and pepper into a flank steak. But then straight after that, too soon for it to be the ethyl bufidrone, the other two had run out onto the yard and started vomiting ballistically onto the concrete. Between spasms, Barky said the glow they'd taken must have been fake. It occurred to Raph that if he hadn't even heard of glow until tonight, and yet some opportunist was already selling a fake version, then he must be badly behind the times. And then he realised with horror that somewhere the American girl was probably throwing up too because of drugs he'd pushed on her, and she only had about half Barky's body mass, so a poison could kick her twice as far. Even if he ever found Cherish again, she'd never want to speak to him. Now, coming down from the ethyl bufidrone, Raph just feels bleached and fidgety, and he decides he probably didn't have a chance with her anyway. When the bus finally arrives, its windows are bright like a goods vehicle hauling not flowers to market but bulk photons. He gets on, nods to the driver, beeps his oyster card, and climbs the spiral staircase up to the top deck. What he sees there startles him so much that he forgets to hold on to the vertical handrail, so when the bus halts at a junction, he nearly topples forward. A fox sits there, about six rows back. Every hair in its orange coat burns with a separate flame, and the reflection of a streetlight outside the window is curled up inside each of its round black eyes like a pale girl in a spin dryer. Raph has never noticed before that the white fur of a fox's snout and belly is sprinkled over its eyes, too, to make two oversized brows, and as it considers him, this one wears an expression of detached scientific interest. 
The animal couldn't have got past the driver, he thinks, so it must have jumped on at the exit doors when someone got off. As the bus accelerates again, he sits down and the fox turns from him to look out of the window. A scent reaches Raph's nose, muddy and petroleous, a savage hydrocarbon with no derivatives. No other passengers get on, and when the automatic loudspeaker announces in her broken diction that they've arrived at Camberwell Green, the fox jumps to the floor and trots downstairs to disembark. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, I wanted to start by asking where Glow's chemistry began for you. Was, was it after the multi-layered construction of the teleportation incident? Did you fancy writing a bit of a caper? Oh, well, uh, I actually... I had the idea even before I started writing that book, so I nearly wrote them in the other order. Uh, but it was that... Well, I'd written two books in a row set in mostly in the 1930s and 40s, and I really wanted to write something about the present day. Uh, and so I was trying to think, what are two things about the present day that I feel like haven't been written about properly that I could write about? Uh, and one of them was pirate radio in London, and the other one was uh, corporate imperialism in developing countries, which I'd been interested in since reading The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein several years ago. Uh, and as is always my method when I have two ideas, I try and think, can they just be one book to save time? <laughs> um, and so I tried to think about how, where they would overlap and obviously, pirate radio is a lot to do with raves. At raves, people are taking drugs. Um, a lot of this corporate imperialism goes on in Southeast Asia, which is sort of around the Golden Triangle, where a lot of the world's drugs are manufactured. So it became obvious almost immediately that it was going to be some kind of drug thriller. Uh, and then the rest of it emerged from that triad. And it was obvious to you that it was going to be some sort of thriller as well. You wanted the kind of the caper element in there. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, if you're going to have these um, sort of sinister corporations with their corporate security, then you automatically have a villain and sort of military-trained people. And then pirate radio, obviously, there's a lot of petty criminals around, so they are sort of packing heat too. So you have suitcases full of drugs and you have people running around in secret with guns. So it kind of can't, unless you take rather perverse steps to make those elements inert, it can't really not be a thriller at that point. And I think all of my books have been kind of thrillery, but they've just, um, they've kind of uh, tamped that down a bit. Whereas this, yeah, it's just 21 days action basically. Let it all hang out. Yeah. yeah. Are you, I mean, it's, it's something that the, the action is measured out almost on the watch. I noticed when you were reading, you, you suppressed those timings. So it's kind of 2.17am, 5.34. But you turn them into laters. Well, yeah, so the reason for that is that the main character, Raph, has this uh, disease, which is a real disease, called non-24-hour sleep-wake syndrome, which is that... Um, most of us are circadian rhythms, so when we naturally get drowsy or wake up, are attached to the 24-hour clock. So we, um, you know, we're awake for around 16 hours and then we sleep for around 8 hours and it adds up to 24. But there are people 
where something is wrong with them neurologically and they don't add up to 24. So Raf adds up to 25, which means each day he falls one more hour out of sync with the normal 24-hour clock. And then every 25 days, his cycle resets. So he's extremely conscious of the time of day at all times uh, because he's always kind of trying to manage his syndrome and live a normal life around it. Uh, so he's always thinking about the exact time. But then also, you know, like thrillers so often have timestamps like 24 or whatever. Um, I thought, again, that was a nice way of bringing them together to have these timestamps in the book, which are both Raph thinking about what time of day it is, but also these slightly pedantically precise, uh, like, yeah, thriller kind of The ticking markers. clock of the yeah. machine. But then actually also, because the number of hours that have elapsed is really important throughout the book, and I couldn't have every, every section begin with, like, a few hours later or, like, five-ish or dawn or whatever, because that, that would just seem, like, too much in the other direction, <laughs> making it kind of willfully fuzzy. So I just thought, I'll give you the time, yeah. <laughs> The novel begins with your hero sticking a twist of cigarette paper in his mouth containing some substance which could be wonderful or could be dangerous or he knows not what, really. I mean, it's experienced at once so every day and so extraordinary in our prohibited age. Yeah, well, although I think we're getting a bit less prohibited. I mean, especially this was written in what I think of as the methadone era, which was when methadone, which is this kind of extremely demeaning ecstasy substitute was very popular and still legal because the law hadn't caught up with it. Um, and you could buy it uh, on the internet from these sort of importers in Essex. And then, as I understand it, you know, people would be sold MDMA and it would turn out to be methadone, or people would be sold methadone and it would turn out to be MDMA, or people would be sold something else and it would turn out to be ketamine. And... I think at that point, people just sort of give up trying to, like, be precise about what they're ingesting. You know, I think it's a, it's a, bit, a bit like the 60s, but not as good. I think in the 60s, people, like, all that brown acid stuff, you know, you can't... It's not like organic food. You can't ask for the provenance of everything <laughs> that you're taking. So when, when drug culture is in that a sort of slightly shaken-up era... Yeah, people just swallow things, I think. And then maybe when it settles down, people start to do things like purity tests like they did in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, Raph is at first puzzled by some acronyms he sees on a drugs forum, Lotophage, A-F-O-A-F, a friend of a friend, or S-W-I-M, someone who isn't me, what he calls the ragged legal cloak you're supposed to wear if you're telling stories about controlled substances. So um, what, where does your detailed knowledge of contemporary <laughs> drug culture come from? Well, is, is it a friend of a friend? or Lotophage is based actually very closely on this real drug message board. Well, there's two. There's one called Drugs Forum and there's one called Blue Light. Um, and they, I re whatever your interest in drugs, they're really fascinating reading because um, I actually wrote a piece about this for the N Plus One website. Um, they have sub-forums for every different drug. And 
for instance, they have this heroin subforum where people talk about managing their heroin addictions. And it's so interesting reading an entire... So it's an account of being addicted to heroin that is neither glamorized nor sort of anti-glamorized. So it's not, it doesn't make it sound cool and it also doesn't make it sound like a horror film. As, and most, mostly our culture does one or the other. It's just these people who have normal lives talking about like what heroin does to your fingernails or like where you hide your stash in your car or whatever. And it's so interesting. Just always like, just anytime someone is really into their hobby, it's interesting <laughs> reading two people with that hobby communicating. I think that's like, I love all message boards of that kind. And it's so interesting with heroin because we never see that side of it. But then also they have sub forums for these kind of cutting-edge compounds. And there are some amazing exchanges on there. So the one that is particularly memorable, and I'm amazed, I mean, I write about it in this essay, I'm amazed it's never been properly reported on, is there was this one compound that someone cooked up. Again, it's quite 60s. There was this one compound that someone cooked up and started selling, and it was killing people. And a lot of the people who were taking it in the early days were people on this forum. Because basically, if you're that interested in this stuff, then you start posting on this forum to exchange information. And you could see this... Basically, I mean, it's a public health emergency, basically, because this guy had sent out several packages of this drug because he was a small-time retailer and then taken some himself and died. And people found out that he had died because he was kind of prominent on the forum and then realised that everyone he'd been sending these drugs to had also died. And you could see this public health emergency playing out in real time on the forum as people were posting, my friend got some of this, I've heard about this guy who's a friend of a friend taking it and dying. Uh, and people, because obviously you can't, well, people didn't want to call the police. People kind of coming together to try and manage it themselves on a web forum, all these international people. So it's extraordinary reading. Um, and I was reading it like long before I wrote the book. And then a lot, of the, a lot of the material in the book is quoted word for word from that forum. Yeah, so there's one called Drug, Drugs Forum. And there's one called Blue Light. I think they're both hosted in Russia. But they're just like, it's really worth going down that rabbit hole for a while. It's so interesting. Yeah, you say that nobody picked up on that. Is this is part of the... the the ambition for this book to, to educate, to start a debate. I mean, you, you Cherish says, if you don't educate about yourself about this shit, you're an idiot. Is this partly what you're trying to do? Well, I think there's two... There's kind of two lines of that. One is neuroscience in general, and which I'm fascinated by. I completely think of my brain as a machine with inputs and outputs, uh, partly because I studied philosophy of mind, and I've always been interested in that, and I really try and follow what's going on well, I'm, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I try and follow the sort of popularizations. And I do feel like you can actually live your life a lot better if you understand the mechanics of your own brain, which does mean setting aside some sort of romantic notions about, like, the idea that there is really such a thing as the self, for instance, which I no longer believe. But if you're willing to set that aside, there's so much self-improvement you can do once you educate yourself about how your brain works. There's the other thing, which is about drugs. I don't think... And I'm not on a mission to educate anyone about contemporary drug culture. I just thought that, you know, such a high proportion of teenagers and young people have taken drugs, especially stuff like methadone. And yet I just haven't seen it written about very widely or very well. And for a novelist, that's, you know, your nostrils immediately start flaring. Like the reason I wanted to write about drug culture is because not very many other people have done it. 
which means it's just really fertile ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the characters in Indigo are in a kind of altered state as well, aren't they, Clemens? Though, in contrast, the, the altered state that they're in is, is inflicted on them from the outside, isn't it? Yeah, but it's uh, communicated in a way that it's, it starts with the birth of somebody. Yeah. Somebody's born as a, as I call it, indigo child. The, that phrase exists in the real world as well and means something different. It means something um, uh, from the esoteric uh, world where apparently uh, from the 80s um, there, there have been children with a blue aura, whatever that is, and they um, are among us and are more spiritual. So I just stole the name from that ridiculous concept and sort of gave it a new meaning, which is a, a disease, uh, or a, a, parent, well, a so-called disease. But do we might hear a little bit about how the disease operates in, in, a, in a piece of the novel? If we... I should read something? If you're ready, okay. yeah. Well, um, that, uh, you suggested uh, a, uh, uh, four pages, but I have to explain a little bit about the, um, just, just the... Um, the logistics of that situation. Uh, children who are said to be uh, afflicted with that disease, they are harmful. So if you are around them, there is always um, sort of a countdown. You have maybe one minute or maybe ten minutes, and then you start feeling things. Like if you're in a, in a contaminated uh, radioactive area or something. And uh, I recently bought a Geiger counter, and uh, I walk around with it now, and... And the f- funny thing is, if you, I, I once took it. This is just a footnote. I once took it in a um, in a plane, not not this time, but um, and uh, it, it it the the alarm was going off because the radiation is so high. It's twenty times the normal. Um, ra- uh, but you radiation. haven't got it with us here. No? Not today, okay. no, because it's difficult to get it through the um, through the uh, the airport security <laughs> because they wanted to, want you to to uh, switch it on, explain what it is. And some part of the device uh, activates the alarm there. But, but the funny thing is, just as a footnote to the footnote, I once, uh, I once activated it because the guy at the airport security wanted me to. And I said, uh, I said, what is this? And I said, a Geiger counter. And I had to switch it on. And then the alarm was going off. And I didn't understand why. So, but because they have this uh, screening device, which is with uh, X-rays. And I could, I could see on the face of the, the person... Um, sort of getting worried because he was probably working there for years and he, and he didn't nobody told him that he was uh, living in a background radiation of i don't know maybe uh, 0.5 microsievert per, per hour or something which is yeah quite high if you <laughs> the x-rays constantly and sort of it, it creates a radiation um yeah so but um the these children are um said to be um I don't know if that's the right word, sickening, or they, they, they inflict um, suffering on others. They, they themselves don't have any symptoms, but if you're around them, you get headaches, uh, nausea, skin rashes, and so on. And, and so uh, there are many solutions to that problem. One is just to be at home and be homeschooled and never be allowed to go out or something. And, and then the other thing is uh, one, um, an institute that is founded... Um, which, is, which I call the Helianau Institute, and I located it in uh, the mountains of Austria, the very um, remote place where nobody is, and it's, it's like a, um, a boarding school or something. Um, and uh, the reason why I put it there, so if you, if you just imagine Austria on the map, it's like, 
I usually compare it to a crocodile's head and uh, Vienna is the eye of the crocodile, so it's like it looks like a crocodile with a snout. And this would be exactly where the cheeks are of the of the crocodile. Uh, so that's where the high mountains are, which is called the Semmering. And uh, the reason why I put it there is because a it's remote and it's sort of rural and there's nothing else there. And the other reason was sort of autobiographical because once I was going over the Semmering, there's no tunnel. They they didn't they just began the tunnel and then abandoned it and so the, the train has to go over it's ridiculous really it's just it goes you can almost walk beside the train it goes very very slowly over the mountains and it takes hours um, and um, I was in a in the uh, in the train with a, a person and uh, I was I saw that he he was he had in, an interesting array of pictures of children and it looked kind of creepy so a guy studying children's pictures just very intensely and I, I was asking what, what, what it was and I thought maybe he's an artist but he was an educator um, uh, and he said that he was on the way to a conference to Vienna and, and he was telling me but this, this area uh, where we're here in the, in the mountains there is one interesting um, um, school for children with uh, difficulties um, I don't know what the correct term is who are children who are violent and can't behave and uh, he said he, he was once he was there, and he played the game of musical chairs. You know that thing where where you have to go around and then uh, the music stops and then you sit down. But he just used as many chairs as there were children over and over again to confuse them. Because usually it's played with one chair less, so that one person has to keep standing and he's out of the game. But he was using and he was doing that over and over again until maybe someone would protest and they didn't they just played it over and over again pointlessly again and again for hours and didn't understand why nobody why their number wasn't reduced um, so I thought this is the perfect place to put my my school for indigo children there and I'm reading four pages um, there's a character the main character in the book is has my name and he has the same occupation as I once had um, a teacher of maths and uh, and and German and he's uh, making uh, what's the an internship a teaching internship in this indigo children's school sorry about the very long introduction <laughs> and he's walking around with the director called uh, Dr. Rudolf on the soccer field, the grass grew knee-high. It hadn't been mowed for quite some time. I asked the principal about it, and he only shrugged and said that in summer, in any case, games would be played here again. On the large meadow next to the playing field stood several trees that had just begun to bloom. A slight figure moved among them with a strangely jagged and irregular steps. The principal stopped and told me to do the same. He shielded his eyes with both hands, then whistled by sticking two fingers in his mouth. The figure, a boy who was carrying something around with him that looked like an empty bird cage, responded with a similar whistle. In the principal's face there was a certain strain, but also a genuine excitement, as if he were looking forward to the imminent encounter. Max, he shouted, beckoning the boy toward us. Is he... The principal turned to me and nodded, yes, he's from here. A really sweet boy. 
one we've pinned our hopes on. His parents are incredibly nice, too. His father recently purchased a paper mill from... Yes, Max, hello! Good morning, shouted the boy, remaining at about ten yards' distance. The principal approached him. The boy first backed away a little, then understood and extended his hand so that the principal could shake it. Come on over, he said, waving me closer. He doesn't bite, ha <laughs> ha. The boy named Max held out his hand to me, and when I took it, I noticed that it was ice cold. Probably he was nervous. We'll stay a few minutes, the principal said with a kind smile in my direction. So, yes, Max, this is Herr Seitz. He's going to... He made a gesture that was apparently supposed to signal that I should finish the sentence. I'm doing my teaching internship here. The boy nodded. He put the empty birdcage down in the grass. Yes, the principal said enthusiastically. He will serve as Professor Ungar's replacement. Mm-hmm, said Max. A tick yanked his hand up, and he held the back of it against his lips. Then he brushed three times in a row with exactly the same movement and imaginary strand of hair from his forehead. I knew that I should ask something. How are you doing? Do you like living here? What problems are there in everyday life? How do the teachers behave towards you? Instead, I said, warm today, isn't it? Yeah, it's starting to get somewhat warmer again, said the principal. Max, you're on the way to main building. Yes, we were heading there too, yes. Great, great. The whole time I couldn't help thinking, I feel nothing, nothing at all. A normal boy, a normal day, no effect. All just in the head. Max nodded and again brushed the non-existent strand aside. I think we better get going then, said the principal, dabbing the sweat from his forehead by his, with his sleeve. Was nice to run into you, Max. Ah, and please tell Herr Mauritz to keep the keys... At to bring the keys up to me around six o'clock this evening because of the bus. And, okay, said Max, backing away a few steps. Yes, and can you also tell him that the door to the yard still squeaks? He has to take a look at that. Today, okay? Mm-hmm. Max's backward movement appeared to happen unconsciously. It seemed like a natural reaction, like rubbing your palms together when you've decided something, or shifting from one foot to the other when you're waiting impatiently for something. All right, then, okay, said the principal, now taking a few steps back, too. Since I didn't want to remain standing alone in the middle, I followed him. Max waved again and then marched in his jerky gait, accompanied by occasional ticks and twitches toward the main building. He notices, of course, when the effects set in. The children aren't stupid when it comes to that, so a sort of etiquette develops, which you learn gradually. For that, too, it's good to be here at the Institute. Far away, a bell rang. Shortly thereafter, another student came across the field. He had the same choppy, jagged gait as Max and waved to us from some distance. The gestures were reminiscent of a fencer. Dr. Rudolf waved back. I did the same. The boy, perhaps 13 or 14 years old, stopped, and I was about to start walking to greet him from up close, but Dr. Rudolf held me gently back. The boy also raised his palms in a polite stop gesture. New tutor, shouted the principal, pointing at me. The boy bowed, bowed elegantly and then said something I could hear but couldn't immediately understand. He spoke at once quickly and slowly, like the live stream of an internet video cutting in and out. On that day I encountered for the first time the strange mixed language of the Institute children 
an extremely fast system of hand signals, probably approaching the differentiation of a sign language, combined with, some, with a somewhat loud, highly accentuated speech that unnaturally drew out certain syllables. It sounded as if they were articulating through a megaphone that produced a somewhat too long echo. Soon thereafter, I saw in the dining hall of the institute a student who actually wore a small, light blue megaphone on a black leather strap around his neck. After the boy had moved on, the bell rang again and another child appeared. They come out one after the other, one after another. There is, a, there is an order, said Dr. Rudolf, an order. His mind seemed to be elsewhere. Robert looked strange, he said. Did you notice his eye? No. Yeah, he said thoughtfully. It would be stupid if there had been another... You know what? I'm going to quickly... Just a moment, okay? He pulled his cell phone out of his pocket and called someone. Because he took a few steps away from me, I couldn't understand what he was saying. I stood alone in my spot and didn't budge, like a chess piece waiting to be moved. On its own, it would never come up with the idea of leaving its square. The dining hall was a strikingly low-ceilinged but large room, in it were long rows of tables to which every few yards a chair was attached. You could slide the chairs along the tables like volume controls. When the principal and I entered, several heads turned toward us. Dr. Rudolf went to a lectern, pushed against the wall and flipped an intercom switch. Bon appétit, ladies and gentlemen, came from the loudspeakers mounted in every corner of the room. Bon appétit, the MOOC students replied. We walked through the dining hall, past the eating noises of the students. I noticed when the spoons struck the soup bowls, they made a bell-like high sound, reminiscent of the soft ringing of a grazing herd of cows. And how many indigo children are in a class, I asked. Dr. Rudolph's eyes widened for a brief moment, then he said calmly, we don't use the I word here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, there are some uh, all throughout the book who, who believe it's nonsense, that it's all in the mind, uh, as if something that's not in the mind isn't real. Yeah, there's a, a famous writer in, Austrian, uh, in Austria who's called Thomas Bernhard. I'm sure maybe some of you have n uh, heard the name. And he always said, everything is real, even if it's in the mind, especially if it's in, in the mind. So um, I think... Uh, with uh, something like mass hysteria, mass, his mass hysteria is a, a real problem. I mean, the people are, uh, can die from it. So it's, um, and I usually don't distinguish between imagination and real life and concrete reality. I was mm, probably the kind of child that, uh, you know, I was, uh, when I was a kid, I was always the one who was not, when you play hide and seek, I was the one that wasn't looked, what, how do you say that? When I hit, they just left me where I was. <laughs> <laughs> and after a while, you develop um, fantasies about it. Why you're not, uh, you know, why nobody wants to to look for you. So I, uh, you start to hide badly, so, so that, that half of your body sort of reaches out of a bush or something. And yeah, I, I. I for a long time I thought that maybe I was kind of toxic or I was 
mm, it was bad to be around and that that's that's a fantasy or whatever delusion but it was real to me and i had a constant reinforcement and um uh what what's the word um, yeah i it, world seemed to be um, explainable through that lens uh, yeah. the uh, the symptoms that suffer uh, that people suffer near these children i mean that dr rudolph gradually losing the ability to construct a thought during that passage or the 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 parents the mothers and fathers who who uh, start with tiredness and then get a bit dizzy and headache they're kind of the the anyone who's with who's had young children will will remember that there are times when you feel a little bit tired a little bit dizzy you're not quite sure what's going on but you've just taken these symptoms and pushed them to the max yeah and and, and the characters do themselves i mean there's there's one scene where um, the Clemenset's character visits a, a woman who has an indigo child at, at home and she's teaching him at home and, and he's never allowed to go out and she complains about headaches and, and other things and, but he notices that there's a, 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 a um, extreme uh, strong smell of um, I don't know what the, the, the English um, equivalent would be some, some air freshener like um, I don't know like Lysol or something I'm, I'm not sure of the, of the name uh, Febreze, maybe that exists too. That does yeah, exist. Yes, yes. Okay. So, yeah. So and it's it's uh, it's just everywhere and it's it's sickening, but she doesn't seem to notice that factor. She just thinks it's it's her child, and um, yeah. And then there's even a, an, an industry with these the or not an industry, a sort of a a black market of indigo children because if they have that effect on other, maybe we'll use that and torture people with it or something. Yeah. So that's the uh, the sick, twisted fantasy that I was uh, <laughs> often <laughs> accused of having. But there's um, th- there's a there's a there's a kind of slightly sick side to your treatment of the the, the you're pretty cynical about global uh, corporations yourself, Ned. In 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 Glow, you, they're they're a very sinister uh, organisation who are who are kind of. Uh, who are trying to control people and trying, uh, there's, it's, there's a kind of confrontation between your characters and, and these kind of world-bestraddling corporations. Is it a kind of angry novel? Well, I don't think of myself as that political, but just, yeah, I mean, reading The Shock Doctrine, I would really recommend it to anyone who hasn't already read it because it does make you see the world in kind of a different way. There was that documentary a few years ago called The Corporation, um, which argued that if corporations were individuals, which under American law they, of course, are, then they would be diagnosed as psychopaths. Um, and between that and the shock doctrine... And then also I read uh, uh, the book about Blackwater by Jeremy Scarhill, which was really good. And I guess the thing, the thing which I really wanted to approach was... Uh, companies like Blackwater in Iraq or as we learned from the shock doctrine kind of American resource extraction companies in the developing world they uh, have this very convenient thing where they're based in the US so they have all the kind of protections and status of being a US company and can funnel their profits back there they operate in countries with no rule of law uh, and also they always claim immunity from prosecution, they bribe the government so they can get away with anything. And 
it feels like these companies have no, obviously no loyalty to these countries in which they're operating, but they have no real loyalty to the US, I wouldn't say either, because uh, these companies are bigger than any one country. I wanted to write about, we're quite complacent about the idea that a, com a company like Blackwater can go to Iraq, for instance, and operate with complete impunity and kind of murder whoever they want and get away with it, which has, well, arguably happened. But because these companies are bigger than any one country, there's really no reason why they shouldn't come back and do it to us. I mean, the reason that Blackwater, or it doesn't exist anymore, but the reason its current equivalent won't do that in the UK or the US is because, you know, we have more of the rule of law here. But if they could do it and they could get away with it, it doesn't seem to me that if they're willing to do it in Iraq, why wouldn't they be willing to do it in this country? And yet we're kind of fine with them doing it in Iraq. But of course we would be outraged if they did it in this country. So, yeah, the book was partly asking how would we feel if these multinational companies operated in the same way in our hometowns that they operated in hot, faraway countries where the people have no recourse and no visibility. You may be running away from mysterious men in silent white vans or fomenting some kind of revolution in Burma, but, but you're never afraid of a gag. I mean, there's a couple of running gags that go through the book uh, about the Japanese girls in Isaac's flat who are, as always, are magnificent. Or you have a lot of fun with René Villepin's lacunosities. I'm wondering if literary fiction is a bit scared of humour. Well, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I find it quite hard to write anything that doesn't sometimes lean in that direction because probably because I sometimes read like um, very serious very grave novels and I just think life isn't really like this I mean unless you're in the immediate aftermath of a bereavement or you've survived something really horrible no one goes through life without ever finding something funny about their own circumstances. So I find really gloomy, really austere novels just as artificial as, you know, my books where I probably push things too far sometimes to keep the running gag going. And I've tried, I have, like, I've tried to write short stories where nothing is funny, but it just feels so artificial because that's not what life is like. I mean, there's every moment in life there's something, not necessarily that's going to make you guffaw, but there's going to, that there's some kind of incongruity or some kind of sods law situation or something which tends more towards humour than it does towards kind of deep, dark doom. Uh, so I don't know if I ever could write a novel which, which didn't have any jokes. And also, again, it's a thriller and like, my favourite thrillers are the Hitchcocks, and there's no Hitchcocks which aren't also really funny at the same time as being exciting. Uh, so I think it's, it's time now to open it up to you folks. I mean, I don't know if you've got the questions that are looking for deep, dark gloom or something that's a little bit more uh, awry, perhaps, but have we got a question from the audience? Don't be shy. There's a man at the front here with, with a question. Excellent. If you just wait for the microphone to come to you, then it comes. Good morning. Thank you all for being here. Um, all three of your novels, um, Boxer Beetle has the insects, um, Teleportation Accident has the lizards, which you think 
are simply in the background but suddenly become relevant at the end. And the fox in Glow, all three have an animal motif running through them. Was that something you consciously decided in advance or was it just something that that came out in the writing and seemed right and, and will you continue that? Well, I mean, I love animals um, and I love reading about what animals do. I'm reading this great book at the moment called uh, Tropic something, Life and Death in the Central American Rainforest. And I'm on the chapter at the moment about like how frogs raise their young. Did you know that some frogs don't lay eggs? Some frogs just get pregnant like us, for instance. Really interesting. Um, so I've always loved that kind of thing. It's kind of, uh, I'd say it's, although it's, 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 the instinct has been different between the different books because, um, uh, like the Beatles in Box the Beetle was through the lens of science. The lizards in the teleportation accident was more through the lens of kind of like pulp science fiction. And then this book is the first time where, as it were, I'm writing what I know. So I don't, I've no, I haven't had many encounters with insects or lizard people, but one of the very first things that kind of throbbed for me when I was writing this book is that I'd had so many nights going home on the night bus through South London and having these really kind of entrancing, heart-stopping moments with urban foxes running across the road or stopping to look at you as you're rounding a corner or whatever. And I love foxes in London. I, um, I find it really moving every time I see one. So, uh, so yeah, that's why foxes are so central and foxes are on the cover. So, yeah, I mean, uh, all the books have animals because I love animals, but this is the first book where I'm writing about animals that I feel like I'm acquainted with rather than just animals that I've read about on Wikipedia. Uh, do we have another question? There's a lady over here. Hello, this is for both of you. Um, most of your books seem to have a dystopian kind of feel to them. Do you think dystopian kind of novels seem more popular, more relevant as the years go by than utopian ones, and why do you think that is? Ah, okay. Um, I just thought that um, my book as well has a is actually about animals more than more than people. Um, it, I just thought about it. I'll, I'll answer your question. I just just came to me because I once had, and maybe that that does it that that makes it a non dystopian novel. I um, once asked myself the question. You remember probably the in the nineties there were there were pictures of mice with human ears on its back. I think um, I forgot the name of the mouse, but it was named named after its um, creator. And um, I I thought this was a world famous mouse. Where is it buried? And then I I sort of googled what what they do with with uh, dead um, uh, lab rats and it, you don't want to know it's terrible, but and uh, I thought this is this is so sad that this mouse who had a human ear on its back and was proving something about genetics um, to the world, and we see we we've seen it climb around and and, and you know oblivious to the strange structure on its back, 
and I thought that it should have a grave, it should have a sort of a memorial plaque, and and my book actually, it, this is not a joke, is is the grave of I I buried it at some place, um, and if you read it carefully, you find the grave of the mouse, and I think that was sort of the comforting idea of my book, and that makes it a non-dystopian novel. But to answer your question, I'm sorry to to digress. <laughs> um, I think dystopian literature. I I once wrote a, um, an essay in about it uh, just for you know when I was studying German. And it, it's it's interesting because the dystopian literature sh seems to be English speaking mostly uh, the famous examples. And I don't know what didn't know why that what it was because in, in German the German literature. It it's sort of um, as if you really have to make an effort to be dystopian. Maybe even inside the language, maybe it's it's sort of the the, the way the grammar works or the, the the way the the words are constructed. It makes it really hard to be hopeless and bleak. But all the literature in in the country where I've come from sort of wants to get to that, but can't. So it's a, it's almost like a, a, a utopia, something you 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 can never reach. A uh, a state of total hopelessness, but then you're using German, which this is funny language where you have, you, you know, you, everything is like a metaphor and everything is like a, a saying. It's it's so it, it, it's so literary um, for in in anybody's mouth. And um, maybe the, maybe this is just maybe I, yeah maybe it's the same in any language. But no, I I think where I come from, dystopian novels are really something that is you you can never reach as a as a sort of like in maths, sort of certain um, series that converge and but never reach the convergence point. How about you, Ned? Do you, do you think that the dystopian novel is popular in anglophone letters, at least? Well, I don't know. I wouldn't regard my novels as dystopian, and I mean, in a sense, they're sort of about averted dystopias. So, Box the Beetle is a lot about the British fascist movement in the 1930s. Like, if they'd had a bit more political acumen, you know, who knows what this country would look like now? And similarly, I suppose my third book is a little bit about like if corporations are allowed to run riot with no one to oppose them, what could happen? But in the book, there is someone to oppose them. I mean, I haven't read a lot of that kind of fiction. I don't find it particularly compelling because the so-called dystopias in those books actually seem like quite comforting sort of avoidances of what is actually going to happen. So, like, I don't know, I've seen the first two Hunger Games films and you think, okay, so um, these people... Uh, have you know no freedom they're very poor and they have to do like horrible demeaning jobs for uh, people richer than them like most of the world already but some because it's Americans like it's a dystopia now <laughs> and then the worst thing that's going to happen over the next hundred years is not that America is going to be divided into 12 sectors and they'll all have to do specialist work the worst thing that's going to happen is that we will all die either of malaria brought here by mosquitoes that now breed in the northern world because of climate change or of antibiotic resistant t TB like there are so much so many things that are so much scarier to me that really seem like they're going to happen than anything that happens in these so-called dystopian novels that to me they're just they're like they're also about inverted dystopias they're novels where 
you know, things have taken the wrong track politically, but the world in kind of biome terms isn't falling apart, which, like, I'd be happy if, that, if it turned out like that. So on that happy note, <laughs> uh, I think we're going to have to call a halt to proceedings for this morning. Uh, thank you very much indeed to Cameron Zetz and Ned Bowman. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for your questions. Thanks. Can I just ask you to stay seated so we can get these two to the signing in, in the bookshop uh, and a, another round of applause for Clement Zetz and Ledger. Thanks. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.